so often throughout the course of history, patriots rise up at a time of need for truth and freedom. These people are called disciples of liberty for their undying love of freedom. The call has been sounded. Will you answer that call or sit back and let freedom die away? Unifying patriots everywhere against the evil trying to destroy America's freedom. You're listening to the Disciples of Liberty radio show on the America Out Loud Network. Now here's your host, Brian Hyde. Hello there, and welcome to the Disciples of Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. Oh, I've got a great message for you today, but I'm going to warn you right up front. This is the kind of message that actually, it could scare you. And if it scares you, it's probably, it's it's doing exactly what it's intended to do. Because I am going to ask you to consider, over the course of the next hour, rising to your destiny. And in order to do that, I want to I want to kind of lay the foundation of what does it mean to rise to your destiny? What does it mean to become the kind of person that other people can look to and say, yep, I need to take him or I need to take her seriously? I'm going to start with uh, with one of my favorite philosophers, that being uh, Paul Rosenberg. Now, all around us, you're going to find that there are people who demand to be taken seriously. In fact, if you're ever on Twitter, just uh, look up libs of TikTok and you will see um, well, you're going to see, I'm, I'm sorry, there's no nice way to say this. You're going to see a bit of a freak show. People with, with incredible facial tattoos and piercings and, you know, multicolored hair and attitude. Oh, attitude for days about how the world is disrespecting them because they continue to misgender me and nobody understands me. Me, 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 me. It's the most incredible exercise in, in toxic narcissism that you're likely to encounter. And the common thread is it's all about, I'm not getting the respect that I deserve. Now, maybe you've known somebody like this, maybe not, you know, full TikTok mode, but have you known people who demand that other people respect them? I think we've all encountered such individuals in our lives. And it's hard to deal with with someone who is telling me, you will respect me. You will show your respect for me. Some people, by dint of, you know, their profession, and, and I'm, not, I'm going to try not to paint with too broad of a brush here, but I want to give you an example of what it means to demand respect versus to command respect, because there's a world of difference here. So, for instance, if you have ever encountered a police officer who is what they would call badge-heavy, and I'm using the term that other police officers use, some cops are badge heavy. And if you are found guilty in their mind of contempt of cop or you're not showing sufficient respect, they will find a reason to hook you up, either with a ticket, maybe they'll put you in handcuffs, maybe they'll take you off to jail. I think of the old uh, Fletch movie with Chevy Chase. The sheriff tells him, Arrest him. And Chevy Chase says, On what charge? Fletch says, On what charge? And the sheriff says, 
pissing me off. <laughs> okay, that's someone who is demanding respect and feels like they're not getting it. Now, I want to share with you an example of what it's like to command respect. Driving down the road here just a couple of years ago, I saw a Utah State Trooper, a female trooper nonetheless, out there on the side of the road, kneeling down, changing the tire for a motorist. And I, I, I don't remember if it was like a minivan with a mom full of kids, mom and kids, you know, anyway. Um, but I was so struck by what this trooper was doing because it was along a very busy artery right through Salt Lake City, Utah. And I'm sure this trooper could have, could have, you know, oh, there's a speeder. I should probably go after them. But instead, she chose to pull over and help this motorist. And, you know, the fact that she was doing something that was clearly helping another person, the fact that she was doing so in a pretty dangerous situation. I mean, traffic, if you've ever been stranded alongside the highway in a major city, it's uh, it's pretty scary. Cars going by at 70, 80 miles an hour, they just don't care. But as I drove by and I saw that trooper kneeling there, uh, putting a tire on the car, I just went, I can't help but respect her. I mean, I, if I tried to, if I tr- focused, I will not respect. Nope. I was going to respect her no matter what because she was doing something that a decent human being would do. So there's the difference. And I hope that that makes sense. Now, let's talk about you and I becoming respectable people. Someone who can be taken seriously. And I don't mean that uh, you walk around everywhere with a dour expression on your face and everybody, you know, oh, great, here he comes, the black cloud of doom, you know. But I'm just talking about being a serious adult. Someone who can be trusted. Paul Rosenberg says, you know, the difference is it's suffering for righteousness that makes you a man or a proper woman. Listen to his explanation. He says, up until political correctness enfeebled the West, we used to talk about the things that separated the men from the boys. And however poorly the phrase may have been used, it had a legitimate point. It's one thing to be male, it's quite another to be a proper man. The same obviously applies to women. It's one thing to be female and quite another to be a proper woman. We used the male version of the phrase because most women's roles were different, at least necessarily different, in the days before reliable birth control. But on whichever side of the biological divide you find yourself, Paul Rosenberg says it's suffering for righteousness that confirms you as legitimate, solid adult material, as someone to be taken seriously. Now, this is one of those either you haven't or you have kind of situations. He says there are all sorts of ways to make a show of being a legitimate adult. You can be a frightening brute. You can display your intellectual prowess. You can hold up your wealth, status, or beauty. Or you can threaten others with power that stands ready to avenge you. But he says none of those things makes you a real man or woman. Because they're shows. They're not substance. They're ornamental plumage. Paul Rosenberg says becoming a real man requires you to suffer for righteousness. Not merely to suffer. Everyone suffers but to suffer because of your personal moral devotion to something. See, that proves that there is solid ground in your soul. So either you've taken a serious risk, suffered for it, and held your position, or else the rest of us can't be sure of your solidity. Either you've suffered for something you thought was right, while punishers didn't, 
or you haven't. Now, he says, let me restate that for clarity. Until you've suffered for righteousness, there's no incontestable reason for the rest of us to take you as a serious adult. And more than that, he says, you have to suffer as an individual. So you can be one of many who make a similar choice, but you have to face personal consequences, not collective consequences. And until you do, the rest of us have no way of being sure. Going along with a group, even a minority group, that's not the same thing as making a costly individual choice. And until that happens, the rest of us lack a reason to trust you as an individual. Now, here's the thing. Some people are going to be hung up on on the word righteousness. Well, what are we talking about? Self-righteousness, being pious or something like that? Now, listen to this definition. Paul says, it may seem that my use of the word righteousness makes being proven right a necessity, but that's not actually the case. He says, the core of this is having the strength to do what you believe is the right thing in the face of contrary power. If believing yourself to be right, you make a hard choice and suffer for it, well, you've shown yourself to be a man or woman, even if you later learn that you were mistaken. What needs to be demonstrated is an honest and strong soul, not factual precision. He says, the best explanation I know of this came from Thomas Jefferson, who said, Your own reason is the only oracle given you by heaven, and you are answerable not for the rightness, but uprightness of the decision. Think about that. It's the uprightness and courage of what you do that matters. Your uprightness is the fundamental, not your rightness. Can you see the distinction? Now, the truth, of course, is that people willing to suffer for righteousness are far more likely to be right than those who simply follow the crowd. But remember, that's not the core issue. And then there's also this belief that hard times make hard men. Now, he says that's an old belief, and he says I tend not to hold that belief, primarily because our development doesn't actually require darkness. And also because brutally hard times sometimes turn boys and girls into broken men and women. So if we rely on brutal times, he says we doom ourselves to heavy damage. Still, there is some truth to this in that hard times force people into suffering for what is right. And we're seeing this right now. So the question becomes, who is suffering for righteousness right now? And here are some good examples. Homeschoolers have been suffering that way for quite some time. They've been called everything, made the butt of endless jokes and barbs and worse. Likewise, Bitcoiners, they've been called fools, suckers, crazies, and so on at length. Now, things are changing a bit now, but in both of these arenas, courage was required, and if you couldn't muster it, well, you fell away. We're now seeing the same and worse directed at people who don't want the quasi-vaccines that officialdom is demanding. These people are being broadly and profoundly discriminated against. Huge numbers of them have been fired from their jobs, forbidden from stores and restaurants, fined, threatened with jail time. These are people suffering for righteousness. They're showing solid ground in their souls, and he says it doesn't matter whether or not the statistics bear them out five years from now. The fact that they are standing for what they think is right and bearing personal costs is enough. And by the way, the same thing is true for the protesting truckers. They are taking risks for what they believe, making themselves respectable men and women. This moment is creating people who are solid. 
Now, they will certainly continue making errors. After all, we all do. But they're not to be confused with empty conformists. Ooh. Can you think of a more stinging label than being an empty conformist? So here's the question that I want you to consider. What was your rite of passage? And if you can't think of one, then maybe you should be preparing for that rite of passage and preparing for the moment where you do have to stand on your own, where you do have to suffer for the uprightness of your conscience. Paul Rosenberg says, Suffering for righteousness is a very pure rite of passage, and we need more such rites. And it's not only to prove things to others, but also to prove them to ourselves. In other words, you need to know that you've done the hard things, that you've suffered for them and stood up to the challenge. Yes, he says, other people need to see that in us, but we also need to see it in ourselves. I think he has a good point here because, in my opinion, we are trained from a very early age to think of ourselves as broken or at least, you know, you, you aren't smart enough, you aren't wise enough to make those kind of decisions yourself. We don't trust ourselves. He says rites of passage are necessary. Now, they have to be hard. They have to cost you in some significant way. In a perfect world, things might be different, but this isn't a perfect world. So if you can't think of your own passages, you better start taking this, this question seriously. Being a nonconformist comes with a price attached. But paying it transforms us into something more. And it's a price we all need to pay, and hopefully sooner rather than later. Suffering is not a virtue of itself, but suffering for righteousness illuminates the fact that we're more than just placeholders and followers. It shows that we are upright men and women to be taken seriously. Now, if this is making you uncomfortable, that's actually a good thing. Okay, I'm, I'm not trying to scare you, but I, I want you to know that's, that's the indication that your conscience is still working. And it's telling you, hey, pay attention here. I don't know what your stand is going to have to look like. Maybe you've already been through it. Maybe it's yet to come. But I do know this. The world really needs people who have that courage of conviction and are willing to stand up regardless of what the thoughtless crowd is telling them. I want to give you an example of what this looks like. Sometimes examples speak very powerfully. Uh, You've heard of uh, Novak Djokovic. I hope I'm saying his name correctly. I'm, I'm not a person who follows tennis very closely, but we are talking one of the, uh, if not the top tennis player in the world. He was uh, deported from Australia last month and, and uh, not allowed to participate in the Australian Open because he has defended the freedom to choose against COVID-19 inoculation. He's chosen not to be inoculated himself. And I want to play for you about a four-minute-long interview that he did with the BBC earlier this week, saying that he has always supported freedom to choose what to put into your body. Listen to the way he answers the questions of, why would you choose to follow this path? This is a perfect example of what it is to suffer for righteousness. Here's Novak Djokovic being interviewed. Against COVID. I have not. Why? Hang on a sec. I'm going to go back here. I want to go to the very beginning so you can hear the, the first thing the interview asks him. Interviewer asks him. This is it. Have you received any vaccination against COVID? I have not. Why? I understand that uh, and support fully uh, the freedom to choose 
you know, whether you want to get vaccinated or not. And uh, I have not uh, spoken about this before and I have not disclosed my medical record uh, and my vaccination status because uh, I, I had the right to keep that private and discreet. But as I see, there's a lot of uh, wrong conclusions and assumptions out there. I think it's important to speak up about that um, and, and, and justify certain things, right? So I... Um, I was never against uh, uh, vaccination. I understand that globally everyone is trying to put a big effort into handling this virus and, and seeing a, hopefully a, a, an end soon to this virus. And vaccination is probably the biggest effort that was made. Probably half of the planet was, was vaccinated. And I fully respect that. But I've always uh, represented and, and always supported uh, the freedom to choose what you put into your body. And for me, that is essential. It's really the principle of, of understanding what is right and what is wrong for you. And me as an elite professional athlete, I've always carefully reviewed, assessed everything that comes in from the supplements, food, the water that I drink or sports drinks, anything really that comes into my body as a fuel based on all the informations that I got, uh, I, I decided not to take the vaccine uh, as of today. So do you have as of today? Yes. I keep my mind open because we are all, we are all trying to find collectively uh, a best possible solution to end COVID, right? I mean, no one really wants to be in this kind of situation that we've been in collectively for, for two years. I'm part of the a sport, a very global sport that is played every single week in a different location. So, you know, I understand the consequences of my decision. And one of the consequences of my decision was not going to Australia, and I was prepared not to go. And I understand that not being vaccinated today, I, you know, I'm unable to travel to most of the tournaments at the moment. And, and that's the price you're willing to pay? I, that, that is the price that I'm willing to pay. Ultimately... Are you prepared to forego the chance to be the greatest player that ever picked up a racket, statistically, because you feel so strongly about this jab? Yes, I do. But as things stand, if this means that you miss the French Open, is that a price you'd be willing to pay? Yes, that is the price that I'm willing to pay. And if it means that you miss Wimbledon this year, again, that's a price you're willing to pay? Yes. Why, Novak? Why? Why do Because the principles of uh, decision-making on my body uh, are more important than any title or anything else. I, I'm, I'm trying to be in tune with my body um, as much as I possibly can. What do you say directly to anti-vaccination campaigners around the world who proudly declare Novak Djokovic is one of us? I say that everyone has the right to, to choose to act or say whatever they feel is appropriate for them. And I have never said that I'm part of that movement. You know, no one in the whole process during uh, Australian saga has asked me on my stance or my opinion on vaccination. No one. So I could not really express, you know what I feel and where my stance is, neither in the legal process, neither 
outside. So uh, it's, it's really unfortunate that there has been this kind of misconception and wrong conclusion that has been made uh, around the world uh, based, based upon, you know, something that I completely disagree with. Isn't that amazing? I mean, look, if you don't have goosebumps, uh, maybe you need to listen to that interview one more time just just to, to catch the, the, the gravity of Novak Djokovic's situation. You know, to, to be sitting atop the world in, in this category as, as perhaps the greatest tennis player ever to pick up a racket. I mean, there's some strong incentive there to, hey... You know, if you want to pursue this this mission of being the very best, you know, at something, you got to sacrifice a few things along the way. And I'm sure he has. I'm sure he has sacrificed a lot of things that he would love to have had right now, that cheeseburger or, you know, that milkshake, for things that he knew were healthy and good, time spent training, you know. He's made sacrifices. But isn't it telling that the one thing he is not willing to give up is his conscience? And, and to me, one of the most telling moments of that whole interview, would you be willing to, to really give all of this up just over a jab? Yes, I would. And the interviewer, Novak, Novak, why would you do this? Now, I'm not trying to condemn his interviewer. I don't even know who the guy is. But that incredulity, that idea that I can't believe you would, you would give it up. I think it very accurately reflects the mindset that is very common, not only among the mainstream media, but also among the the ruling class. Nothing is more important than fame or fortune. Nothing is more important than power. Nothing is more important than bragging rights and recognition as the very best. They just can't believe that someone would have a conscience that would tell them to, to, to take a course that could conceivably steer them away from that destiny. Yet I would argue that uh, Novak Djokovic is actually steering a more true course and setting a better example than he could possibly have set by just simply becoming famous for being such an incredible tennis player. And isn't it interesting when they try the guilt by association thing? Well, you know, the anti-vax movement says he's one of us. Does he get defensive? No. He just says, look, everybody's free to make their own choices. I've never said that I'm representative of that crowd, but it's all about honoring people's freedoms. Now, keep in mind, Djokovic was ejected from Australia last month after the Australian Minister for Immigration, Alex Hawke, deigned that the tennis aces' ongoing presence in Australia may lead to an increase in axi- and, I'm sorry, anti-vaccination sentiment generated in the Australian community potentially leading to an increase in civil unrest of the kind previously experienced in Australia with rallies and protests which may themselves be a source of community transmission. So yeah, they're worried. They're very worried in Australia. His presence in Australia might actually show people that it's possible to live up to your conscience. And that's dangerous. That's far more dangerous than than a virus. The contagion that they're trying to contain... You know, the the transmission they're trying to prevent is the transmission of courage from Novak Djokovic to the average Australian who may be thinking, I don't want to get this either. But but who, who can stand up against the might of society and public opinion and the government and threats and camps and fines and police patrolling everywhere? 
because he proves you can still be true to your conscience. Anti-vaccination sentiment. We don't want to increase that, do we? We don't want people to see what courage looks like. I don't know. I have the deepest respect for this tennis player and for his ability to stand up for himself and, and do it in a way that's not, he's not imposing this on anybody else. In fact, that's the thing that strikes me the most about his demeanor is he's very calm. He's very cool. He's very humble about what he's doing. And this guy has totally earned the right to thump his chest and say, I'm the best in the world. But he's not doing the Muhammad Ali thing. He's just being true. What a powerful example. This is the Disciples of Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde, and you are listening to the America Out Loud Network. The American Constitution is the most magnificent document on earth. We are America Out Loud. Join us as we celebrate the genius of our founding fathers. You can listen in on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. It's time to rethink COVID disinfection. A study by Harvard, Drexel, and Virginia Tech concluded, we don't have a single documented case of COVID transmission through surfaces. The reality is that COVID spreads mainly through the air. Shared air is the problem, not shared surfaces. The solution is the Genesis Fogger, which uses natural HOCL to disinfect both air and surfaces simultaneously. It's perfect for home or business. NIH says HOCL may well be the disinfectant of choice for coronaviruses. There's nothing more natural or more effective. Genesis fogs at the precise particle size to combat COVID and other harmful pathogens. It's what's missing from your disinfecting protocol. Visit genesisfogger.com. America Out Loud listeners receive a 15% discount with promo code OUTLOUD at genesisfogger.com slash OUTLOUD. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep can be infuriating. Your mind races. You toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's digital age makes it even harder. You're not alone with this struggle. Poor sleep affects over 70% of Americans. Even the Centers for Disease Control label insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. To take back your sleep, Healthy Cell has created REM Sleep, the only sleep supplement made to support all four stages of human sleep with calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support delivered in a patent-pending, pill-free, ultra-absorption microgel formula that tastes great. Fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deeply, and wake up refreshed with Healthy Cell's REM Sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Dr. Vladimir Zelenko knows a thing or two about the immune system. He was nominated for a Nobel Prize for his early COVID-19 treatments, and now he's offering his Z-Stack supplements to our listeners at a discount. Just go to zstacklife.com freedom. 
That's zstacklife.com slash freedom. Welcome back. This is the Disciples of Liberty Show. I'm Brian Hyde, and you are listening to the America Out Loud Network. Yeah, the theme today is suffering for righteousness. It's a good thing. Not an easy thing, but a good thing in that you become the person you were born to become, and you show by your example that it's possible to be true, even in a time where virtually everybody else is is doing something else. And I know we want to believe, well, you know, I can coast by and I can blend into the crowd and I don't have to make these kind of hard decisions. I can, you know, pretty much have the best of both worlds being a conformist as well as, you know, standing up for myself. But you know that's a lie. This is one of those places where where every single one of us will have to make this decision at some point in our lives. And I, I don't know when it's going to come, but I know with certainty that Every one of us gets the opportunity to choose. Will I be true to myself or will I go along simply because this keeps some of the heat off of me? And if you've never considered this kind of stuff, I mean, I I would ask you, think about what would you be willing to walk away from? Would you be willing to walk away from your job for the sake of doing the right thing according to your conscience? Oh, it's easy to say, of course I would. Yes, I would. But I would ask you, what are you doing right now that's, you know, exposing you to legitimate pain? Because you're going against something that virtually everybody else is embracing. I think about the professor, and I'm sorry, I can't remember his name. But he, he would ask his students, how many of you would have stood up against slavery back in the time when slavery was an institution in our society? And of course, almost every student raises their hands. I would. I am brave. I am true. I would have stood and been a beacon of liberty and I would have stood up for the oppressed. And this professor, very gently but very firmly, helps them to understand if you're not doing something right now that puts you at odds with the majority of society, and I mean puts you at odds in such a way that you are going to pay a price. You're facing hostility, you're facing ostracization, you're facing the possible loss of your job, your reputation, relationships may be fractured because you are engaged in some kind of activity, standing up for the oppressed or the unpopular. If you're not doing it now, his point is, you wouldn't have done it then. You would have done what most people did, including those who recognize, well, this is wrong, but I don't want to be against society. That's kind of a humbling thing to remember because, I mean, we're all kind of, we're the hero of our own story, right? Our life story is playing out and, yes, we each have this heroic journey. But sometimes it seems that very few people actually rise to the level of being a hero because it's just too painful. So have you ever stopped to really contemplate, well, what, what is it? What do I value in my life enough that I would be willing to part company with polite society because I just could not abandon that value. Now I'm talking about, you know, with the exception of things like family, I think, you know, there are some things that have to be, you know, a very high priority. But if you have never stood at that crossroads and wondered, do I go along? 
Do I embrace it full, full on and throw in with the crowd? Do I just sit quietly and hope that nobody notices I'm not cheering or I'm not doing the salute that everybody else is doing? Or do I actively stand up and use my influence to try to show people that we need to resist this, knowing that it's going to cause people to question me, to smear my name, to hate me, or otherwise, you know, doubt what I'm doing. I know I'm making a pretty strong case. Well, right there, Brian, that's why we, that's why we don't want to do it. That sucks. Oh, it certainly does. But I want to share one more experience with you. This is, uh, this is from Jennifer Say. She was Levi's brand president. And recently she was forced out of her job as the brand president for Levi's. And this is some of the background. She traveled to Moscow back in 1986. She brought 10 pairs of Levi 501s in her bag. She was a 17-year-old gymnast, reigning national champion. And she was going to the Soviet Union to compete in the Goodwill Games. That's kind of, Remember that? The rogue Olympics-level competition orchestrated by CNN founder Ted Turner during a time when the Soviet Union and the U.S. were boycotting each other. Now, the jeans that she brought with her were for bartering lycra. The Russians' leotards represented tautness, prestige, discipline. But the Russians clamored for her denim and all that it represented. American ruggedness, freedom, individualism. So she loved Levi's and her tenure at Levi's began as an assistant marketing manager back in 1999, just a few months after her 30th birthday. She rose through the ranks. She was very successful. She actually brought their their stock into some really uh, impressive areas. During that time, she had four kids, was married and divorced, got remarried. But she always was focused on kids when it came to the things for which she was willing to advocate. And in particular, she found that uh, she when she was strongly advocating for kids, that would sometimes open her up to criticism. For instance, in 2008, she was the vice president of marketing for Levi's, and she published a memoir about her time as an elite gymnast focusing on the dark side of the sport, specifically the degradation of children. We've learned a little something about this, including how the FBI sat on information that there were, you know, leaders among the gymnastics and doctors in particular who were sexually abusing these young girls. Whoops. But the gymnastics community was really furious with her. And at the time, they threatened her with legal action, with violence. Former competitors, teammates, and coaches dismissed her story as just, she's a bitter loser trying to make a buck. They called her a grifter and a liar. But Levi's stood by her. More than that, more than that, they embraced her as a hero. But things changed when COVID hit. In fact, she says, early on in the pandemic... I publicly questioned whether schools had to be shut down. And she says, that didn't seem at all controversial to me. I felt, and I still do, that the draconian policies would cause the most harm to those least at risk, and the burden would fall heaviest on disadvantaged kids in public schools. Kids who need the safety and routine of school the most. So she wrote op-eds, she appeared on local news shows, attended meetings with the mayor's office, organized rallies, pleaded on social media to get the schools open. And she was condemned for speaking out. Now, this time, she was called a racist. Kind of a strange accusation, given that she has two black sons, a eugenicist, and a QAnon conspiracy theorist. Nevertheless, in the summer of 2020, she says, I finally got the call. 
The head of corporate communications told her, you know, when you speak, you speak on behalf of the company, urging her to pipe down. And her response was, hey, my title is is not in my Twitter bio. I'm speaking as a public school mom of four kids. But Jennifer Say says the calls kept coming from legal, from HR, from a board member, finally from her boss, the CEO of the company. And she explained why she felt so strongly about the issue, citing data on the safety of schools and the harms caused by virtual learning. And while they didn't try to muzzle her outright, she says they repeatedly told her to think about what she was saying. Meanwhile, colleagues posted nonstop about the need to oust Trump in the November election. She also shared her support for Elizabeth Warren in the Democratic primary and her sadness at the racially instigated murders of Ahmed Arbery and George Floyd. Nobody at the company objected to any of that. But then in October of 2020, when it was clear public schools were not going to open that fall, she proposed to the company leadership that we weigh in on the topic of school closures in our city, San Francisco. She says, we often take a stand on political issues impacting our employees. So that could be things like gay rights or voting rights, gun safety, and more. This time, she says, the response was different. We don't weigh in on hyper-local issues like this. She was told there's also a lot of potential negatives if we speak up strongly, starting with the numerous execs who have kids in private schools in the city. But she refused to stop talking. She kept calling out hypocritical and unproven policies. She met with the mayor's office and eventually uprooted her entire life in California. Now, she'd lived there for over 30 years, so this is not just a minor, well, fine, I'll just pick up my stuff and go. 30 years, but she moved her family to Denver so that her kindergartner could finally experience real school. And she was able to secure a spot for him in a dual-language immersion Spanish-English public school like the one he was supposed to be attending in San Francisco. Well, national news media picked up on the story as she was asked to go on Laura Ingram's show on Fox News. And apparently that appearance was the last straw. The comments from Levi's employees picked up about her being anti-science, about her being anti-fat. Apparently she'd retweeted a study showing a correlation between obesity and poor health outcomes. About her being anti-trans because she tweeted, we shouldn't ditch Mother's Day for birthing people's day because it left out adoptive and stepmoms. And about her being racist because San Francisco's public school system was filled with black and brown kids and apparently I didn't care if they died. She says they also castigated me for my husband's COVID views as if I, his wife, were responsible for the things he said on social media. Now, all of this drama took place at the regular town halls. That's the company-wide meeting that she'd looked forward to but now dreaded. Meantime, the head of diversity, equity, and inclusion at the company, how's that for a nice title, asked that she do an apology tour. She was told the main complaint against her was that you are not a friend of the black community at Levi's. And she was told to say that I am an imperfect ally, which she refused to say. The fact that she had been asked back in 2017 to be the executive sponsor of the Black Employee Resource Group by two black employees did not matter. The fact that she'd fought for kids for years didn't matter. That she was just citing facts did not matter. The head of HR told her personally that even though she was right about the schools, it was classist and racist that public schools stayed shut while private schools were open. And that she was probably right about everything else, but she still shouldn't say so. And Jennifer says, well, I kept thinking, why shouldn't I? In the fall of 2021, during a dinner with the CEO, she was told she was on track to become the next CEO of Levi's. 
The stock price had doubled under her leadership. The revenue had returned to pre-pandemic levels. The only thing standing in her way, he said, was herself. All she had to do was stop talking about the school things. But she says the attacks would not stop. Anonymous trolls on Twitter, some with nearly half a million followers, said people should boycott Levi's until she was fired. So did some of her old gymnastics fans. They called the company Ethics Hotline. They sent emails. Every day, a dossier of her tweets and all of her online interactions were sent to the CEO by the head of corporate communications. At one meeting of the executive leadership team, the CEO made an offhand remark that she was acting like Donald Trump. And she says, I felt embarrassed and turned off my camera to collect myself. In the last month, the CEO told her it was untenable for her to stay. And get this, they offered her a $1 million severance package, but she knew that she'd have to sign a non-disclosure agreement about why she'd been pushed out in order to get that money. And she says, the money would have been very nice, but I just can't do it. Sorry, Levi's. Jennifer Say says, look, I never set out to be a contrarian. I don't like to fight. I love Levi's and its place in American heritage as a purveyor of sturdy pants for hardworking, daring people who moved west and dreamed of gold buried in the dirt. The red tag on the back pocket of the jeans I handed over to the Russian girls used to be shorthand for what was good and right about this country. And she says, when I think about my trip to Moscow so many decades ago, I still get a little bit choked up. But the corporation doesn't believe in that now. She says it's trapped trying to please the mob and silencing any dissent within the organization. In this, it's like so many other American companies held hostage by intolerant ideologues who do not believe in genuine inclusion or diversity. And she says in her more than two decades at the company, she took her role as manager most seriously. She helped mentor and guide promising young employees who went on to become executives. And in the end, no one stood with her. Not one person publicly said they agreed with her or even that they didn't agree with me but supported my right to say what I believe anyway. She says, I like to think that many of my now former colleagues know that this is wrong. I like to think that they stayed silent because they feared losing their standing at work or incurring the wrath of the mob. And she says, I hope in time they'll acknowledge as much. Now she says, I'll always wear my old 501s, but today I'm trading in my job at Levi's. In return, I get to keep my voice. Okay, that's an example of what courage looks like. And if you feel like, well, my situation's not nearly that grand or it's not nearly that complicated, that's fine. But I promise you, you either have faced or are going to face a similar test of your commitment to your principles. And that part she says about standing alone. No, in the end, no one stood with me. That's a hard place to be. When you stand alone, I mean, that's when you really, and especially when people are throwing stuff at you, you know, verbally or otherwise. It's painful. And that first time someone really tags you with a good shot, you know, about how you're just a phony and a grifter and all this and stuff, they start really questioning your character. It's enough to make most people stop and question, whoa, do I really believe this? I don't know if that's just survival instinct or or what, but... It's a very real thing. And when you find yourself in that situation, this is where you've got to be clear on what is more important to you.
If the acceptance of others and the approval of others is more important, well, you might as well just, you know, give your conscience a shot of morphine and let it drift off to sleep. But if you understand the just inestimable value of having peace of conscience as you move forward through your life, then you'll understand sometimes the price that has to be paid is you've got to suffer the slings and arrows of people who will mistreat you for standing up for what you believe is right. And, you know, it, there's a right way and a wrong way to do this. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to bag on Trump, but sometimes if you get bombastic about it, it doesn't really do as much good as if you can if you can bear your suffering and bear your the indignity of people mischaracterizing you with humility. It speaks volumes about your character. Now, I'll admit, I kind of liked in, in many ways, for instance, when, when Trump, when, when reporters would try to ask him trick bag questions and Trump would just come right back at him and just lay him out flat on their backs. That's kind of fun to watch. But unless your name is Donald Trump, I'm going to suggest that perhaps there, there's a better way you and I could handle those things. And the crazy thing about it is when people see you respond with grace and with humility, especially when you're being uh, abused or wrongly accused of things for which you are not guilty. You never know when that's going to impact somebody else, when you're going to, you know, have the effect that uh, authorities uh, in Australia feared that uh, Djokovic was going to have if that tennis player came and, you know, was was showing that his conscience was more important than, than being the number one tennis player in the world. I don't know what's asked of you. You know, what you're going to be asked to put on the altar to show that you are serious about maintaining your freedom and maintaining your autonomy and maintaining your conscience. But I can say with absolute certainty, you will face that test if you haven't already. And it's not usually just one test. It happens from time to time in your life. All I can tell you from personal experience is when you make that peace with your conscience, no matter what suffering you have to go through in order to maintain your principles, you can know that you are standing with God and that God will smile upon you for having the courage to suffer for the truth. And like Paul Rosenberg pointed out, you know, in his essay, it's not even essential that, you know, you're factually correct. I mean, with humility, there's always the possibility that if there's new truth or new light, you're going to have your mind open to it and be able to adapt and, and, you know, assimilate that into your life. But it takes a pretty selfless person to be willing to stand up on their own when everybody else is going the opposite direction and they are being portrayed as some kind of a madman. That's why not everybody's clamoring to do it. But if you do it, you will learn to trust yourself. Your conscience will be at peace. And most importantly, there will be people around you who are looking, just seeking anybody to show. They feel the same things that you do. They're just looking for someone showing by example that it can be done. You may never talk to them. They may never reach out to you and tell you, hey, by the way, five years ago, you know, when you stood firm and, you know, you gave up that million dollars in severance pay so that you could keep your freedom and keep your voice. I was watching and I'm proud of you. It may generally go unacknowledged. That's okay. 
If you had impact on that person for the right reasons, you have contributed to making the world a better place, a measurably better place. So there's the, there's the challenge before us. All right, I'm going to shift gears here. I wanted to bring up an article by Caitlin Johnstone. And I thought this was just a, a, a terrific article. There, there's a lot of, uh, lot of effort being put forward today to make sure that we all know what the official story is and we all stick to the official story and nobody questions the official story. In fact, those who do, well, they find themselves, you know, blocked or banned or otherwise suspended on most of the major big tech uh, media, you know, social media accounts. Well, I, for one, would rather be a wrong thinker, willing to question the official story rather than trust that the, the ruling class is actually looking out for my interests. There was a time I was naive enough to believe that, but no more. And Caitlin Johnstone does a terrific job of explaining the official story as well as why it is so often disconnected from reality. She says, the official story is that we live in a free democracy where our teachers tell us the truth about our nation, our government, and our world when we are children. And then the free press continue telling us the truth about our nation, government, and world when we are grown. And then every few years we have free and fair elections in which we use this truthful information to make decisions about which politicians and policies to vote for. And it's only by pure coincidence that what we vote for just so happens to benefit the most wealthy and powerful people on the planet. In the official story, she says the democratic process consistently fails to let us progress beyond a status quo of profound inequality, injustice, oppression, exploitation, war, and ecocide, because that's simply how people are voting in their free and fair elections. The official story maintains that this occurs because the populations of all free democracies coincidentally happen to be organically divided into two ideologically opposed camps of equal size, creating a political deadlock which just so happens to benefit the people who profit from profound inequality, injustice, oppression, exploitation, war, and ecocide. Per the official story, Society is driven by the majority, and it is only by an immensely widespread and startlingly consistent series of coincidences that society remains perpetually shaped in a way that benefits a small minority of rich and powerful individuals. Now, these are some pretty strange coincidences, you might find yourself thinking. What are the odds that a society which is driven by the will of the people would so consistently benefit a small minority of rich and powerful individuals to the disadvantage of the voting majority across so many separate nations from generation to generation for many decades without ever deviating from this pattern? Seems like the rich and powerful must be tipping the scales in their favor somehow. Well, The official story holds that you are a crazy conspiracy theorist if you say this and should be shunned and denied any platform from which to speak to a large number of people. The official story is that this sort of society, which serves only the worst people in the world by pure coincidence, is so wonderful that it needs to be exported to every corner of the earth. Also, by pure coincidence, all the nations which most urgently need freedom and democracy always just so happen to occupy land of immense geostrategic importance for planetary domination and resource control. In the official story, Caitlin Johnstone says the United States and its allies are always on the right side of every international conflict. 
And it's only by a series of unfortunate accidents and intelligence blunders that this alliance is killing far more people with military violence and starvation sanctions than any other power structure in today's world. The the news media feed us accurate information about each and every one of these conflicts, explaining truthfully why each country's government needs to be toppled to free the people of that nation. And it's only coincidence that we suddenly stop getting news reports about how those people are doing once they've been liberated from their tyrannical oppressors. The official story tells us that while the U.S. might not always make perfect foreign policy decisions, it's better to have them leading the free world than to risk some tyrannical regime like Russia or China taking over. If the U.S. wasn't constantly invading countries, dropping bombs and staging coups and starving civilians and fomenting unrest and arming terrorists and torturing people and escalating Cold War aggressions against nuclear-armed nations, well, the world could find itself ruled by bad guys. She says the official story protects the official story. Anyone who disputes any part of the official story is peddling misinformation or is a Russian propagandist or is an anti-Semite or is a dangerous extremist or is mentally ill or whatever they need to be in order to ensure that they are never taken seriously by anyone and are silenced on social media and are never given a mainstream audience. Any dissent from the official story is evidence that you must be prevented from interfering in the official story according to the official story. She says, In our official story, our world will be guided by this truth-based, free and democratic status quo in a way which benefits all of humankind. Now, if it seems like inequality is getting worse, or governments are becoming more authoritarian, or capitalism is becoming more exploitative, or wars are getting out of control, or the ecosystem is dying, or we're hurtling towards nuclear war on multiple fronts, that's just your stupid brain trying to trick you. And you should stop listening to it immediately and reacquaint yourself with the official story. She says, here, here's some celebrity gossip. Did you see that Super Bowl ad? Come and watch a movie on this streaming service. Take some time off, calm down, have a beer, and then plug your mind back into the official story. Just ignore the parts of yourself which find it intolerable. Only the official story is trustworthy. Only the official story has the answers. Block out all the other noise, jack your mind firmly into the matrix, and be the the loving, loyal gear-turner you were born to be. Man, she laid it on pretty good there. I mean, for for some people, that's going to feel like a backhand across the face. Her point is well taken, though. Got to tip my hat to Caitlin Johnstone, writing from Australia. Now, obviously, you have found your way outside of the matrix. You found yourself outside of that that little artificial construct of approved opinion, the official story. Else you wouldn't be listening to this program. Else you wouldn't be listening to the America Out Loud Network. My goal today is not so much to foment the idea that, hey, there are people and groups and, you know, powers out there that you should be angry with and that you should be directing your hatred and your frustration towards. Although I totally understand if people are feeling those emotions as they consider some of the things being done by these powers that be. More importantly, though, I am begging you to consider that you have a destiny that you need to live up to. 
And it may not be something that makes front page news. You may never be nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. It doesn't mean that this destiny is any less important than those who do attain, you know, such earthly honors. It's more about becoming the kind of individual who is willing to suffer for righteousness, to become the kind of person that people know by your character that you are a person who should be taken seriously. Instead of being the person sitting in your your city council meeting or your county commission meeting, just pointing out faults and, you know, wow, this is wrong and you're wrong here, you know. What if you're the person who instead they look to when the question comes up on how can we address this problem? And they look to you because it's known that you are a steadfast, trustworthy person and that when you speak, you tend to zero in on the principles at stake as opposed to just sitting there swatting at symptoms and pointing out other people's faults. Can you see the difference? I'm asking you to step up and to be the hero that you were born to be. Now, I know for some people that's going to sound kind of narcissistic. Really, Brian? You see yourself as, as the hero of your own life story? Well, my legendary modesty won't allow me to adopt the uh, title of hero, but I'll put it this way. The longer I live my life, the more I recognize that at certain times and places, God has placed me in a position where my influence could be used to, to be a force for good. And I suspect that he is doing the same thing for every single one of us, sometimes in big ways, most often in small ways. It's quite a thing when you recognize this and you take active steps to live up to it. And it requires putting some serious trust in God. But I think you're up to it. And I hope I'm up to it as well. This is the Disciples of Liberty show on the America Out Loud Network. 